This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 600 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week I have an incredible human being. Every time we hit a benchmark number, None of my guests are more important than the other. However, I try to find something extra special for each of these big number episodes. So Nick Hall was eight years old when a murderer burst into his family's home, shot one of his relatives and held the rest of his family hostage for 50 hours. During that SWAT standoff, there was a tragic miscommunication and a sniper took a shot at what he thought it was the intruder, but it was actually Nick's mother, one of the hostages. Now, for many people, that would send them down a dark path, maybe an anti-police feeling, but ultimately, Nick overcame his trauma and became a police officer himself to be part of the solution. So I cannot tell you how powerful this conversation is. We talk about Nick's early life. We talked about some of the lows that he did find himself, how he entered law enforcement, community policing, and so much more. Before we get to this incredible episode, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of now 600 episodes. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories, so I can get them to every single person that needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Nick Hall. Enjoy. 
Well, Nick, I want to start by saying thank you so much for welcoming me into your beautiful home today. Well, thank you, man. So for people listening, where roughly on planet Earth are we sitting? Uh, we're in central Florida by the beach. Fantastic. So I was connected with you by Doug Monda. This is actually going to be episode 600. Uh, after he told me your story, um, I kind of try and make, not that they're any more um, important than the other ones, but there's kind of like a, you know, a landmark episode. Um, you have such an incredible story. So I'm, I'm, uh, honored that you trust me to sit here today. <laughs> well, no pressure, man. I, and, um, I told him before, like when he told me who you were, I was like, Oh, I, I listened to the podcast and I follow you on Instagram and I was looking on the, on your post. I'm like, Oh man, I wonder who's. Six hundred, <laughs> and like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I put a post up. Who's going to be ex- uh, episode six hundred? Wrong answers only, and it's been hilarious. I should have put my name. I would. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> so now you know. Um, all right. So I would love to start at the very beginning. So tell me where you were born, and then tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did, and how many siblings. Okay, so I was born in New York. Um, I have. A brother and a sister. Uh, I'm the middle one. Uh, I was born born in Long Island in the... I almost forgot where I was born. In 92. <laughs> I'm turning 30 this year. Um, my parents, they they separated uh, before I was born, actually. And my dad ended up moving down to Florida with my older brother. And uh, I grew up in New York for a little bit till I was about eight with my sister. And then... We moved down to Orlando when I was eight, and then, you know, the big incident happened, and I ended up living with my dad after that, and I've been down here in Florida ever since. So, obviously, the incident um, is involving the city of Orlando itself. Talk to me about life in New York as you remember it, and then talk to me about your mom. So, I remember, it's kind of like bits and pieces now. Like, I, I remember, you know, snow those moments and there was a little bit of a time where we have family in Jamaica and I stayed in Jamaica for a bit too. So I remember, I remember living, my, my grandma has a, a big old property. I remember like chasing goats and chickens and stuff. And, uh, New York, I mean, it's, it's what you would imagine a six year old could remember this big, big city, you know? So not too much, uh, memories there, but I did have a lot of cousins. I had like 14 15 aunts and uncles so there was always wow yeah (laughs) all on my mom's side so so there was always somebody to play with up there so your mom was andrea so tell me again the woman that you remember and also you know things that you've learned ever since so growing up uh my mom it was it was always like you know us because i never really remember my dad at that point um She'd always make sure we had somewhere to stay. You know, we weren't, we weren't, I wouldn't say we weren't poor, but like we weren't, we weren't too well off, you know, kind of looking back on things. We'd always live with uh, an aunt or an uncle stay somewhere, you know. Um, there was a, she's, she's quiet, she's a quiet woman, but there was times where I earned an ass whooping. And, <laughs> <laughs> and there was a, there was a specific one where, um, I remember I'd gotten some Pokemon cards and she was like, I was going to go out and try to trade them. And she knew before I left the apartment, she's like, don't, don't go trade them. They might be worth something one day. And I'm like, yeah, it's fine. I'll go and traded them, come back in. She asked me and 
I don't know where I learned the word from, but she was like, did you trade him? And I said, I didn't fucking trade. And next thing I know, I'm running around like a one-bedroom apartment trying not to get <laughs> – trying not to catch a woman. And it, it, it still happened. But, but yeah, quiet, but she she was good with a wooden spoon. <laughs> now, she's obviously raising, you know, multiple children. Um, was was there any kind of professional career side at that point or was she solely just trying to – trying uh, to raise all of you she so um when um from what i remember she was working at was at macy's at a department store and it was you know she'd work there there were some days i'd go there and uh i was i was a little asshole man i would there was uh um shirts that had like toy cars in them and i'd take the toy cars out and hey look look i found these you know and i remember playing like the the video game demos like just all day just making the time pass i don't looking back i don't know how long i was in, in <laughs> i was gonna before, say but but I, I just remember always being there for a while you know so you moved down from new york to orlando so i mean you know sometimes there's time to kind of build up to like certain specific events in people's lives but yours just happened very very early so talk to me about july 23rd 2000 so um, and that, that summer, my, me, my mom and, uh, my sister, she wasn't even one yet. We moved down to Orlando and, uh, we go to my aunt's house. Um, that weekend, that, that day is actually my brother's birthday. Uh, knowing now they were supposed to, my brother was supposed to come over. We we're going to see him that weekend. Uh, it's a Saturday morning. I remember watching, watching, uh, cartoons and, um, I just start hearing like a loud bang on the door, and I look. It's a random, random old white guy with a gun in his hand, and uh, he came in. Uh, I see him. He ends up shooting um, my cousin in the. From what I saw, it looked like he shot him in the mouth, uh, and I think it ended up going through like his spine. Like he, he didn't die. Cousin's alive and well to this day. Uh, I remember seeing like all the blood everywhere, in in like the bathroom. And um, he lets my cousin leave, so my cousin goes outside. But uh, background on this guy, uh, he he was uh, on the run from the cops. He he's a what we would call a piece of shit. He ended up uh, going to prison before for I think uh, something. It was either Bat Leo. I don't I don't really remember too much. Or he ended up uh, it was a murder or something. He gets out early. He is down. Pompano Beach area. He robs a convenience store, uh, shoots, kills the clerk. Um, he's on the run from the cops. He gets up to Orange County. I believe the cops try to pull him over. He ends up shooting a, a deputy, and they're just fleeing. He's fleeing, and he ends up going to our house. And the garage door was open at the time, so he just took that opportunity upon himself to come in, and next thing you know, we're being held hostage. So at the time... You know, your mom was there, obviously. You said your cousin was there and was shot and was able to get out. Um, but you had other siblings in there, too. Yeah. So it was my, it was my aunt's house. So it's, it's her, um, her her kids. It's my cousin that got shot and uh, my other cousins. And uh, my other cousin has a, a kid the same age as, um, it's like my, what, what is that, like a great cousin? I just call her my cousin. Yeah, I think it gets so complicated. <laughs> yeah. So there's two babies, two babies, uh, 
two adults and then teenagers and me. So it's a bit of a full house at the time. Now that becomes a hostage situation. So again, you know, you feel free to kind of fuse what you remember and what you were told, obviously, much later. Um, you know, they burst through a door. You see your cousin shot, which it must be, you know, a horrendously traumatic experience, just singularly. Um, explain how that then became a hostage situation. So, um, so he ends up, uh, he, that happens. And next thing you know, the, the standoff, it, it lasts 50 hours. We're in the house. Um, he's barricaded with us for 50 hours. Um, he, he starts making demands towards the end, like, you know, wanting, well, the SWAT team negotiation team, they wanted to bring us food and stuff. And, uh, so like while we're in there, um, he ends up like moving us from different uh, bedrooms, and there was a time where it's like one of those moments that you you remember like a traumatic sense, like you know a smell or a touch or something. Um, he points the gun, he puts the gun in the back of my head, like as we're like walking, and like to this day, I mean I, I work with guns now, but to this day it was like the coldest gun I ever felt. Like it felt like you put a gun in a freezer, and then you touch it. I just remember feeling it on the back of my head as we were walking from, he had us all, we were all in one bedroom and then he put us all in the master bedroom, like the master bedroom closet. And uh, from that point on in the master bedroom closet, I I remember like just waking up, sleeping, you know, like I don't know what what time frame it is, but it was like one of those moments where I remember like very like, Okay, this is the first time I ever prayed. It felt like, like I was, I still remember the prayer. I'm like, hey, hey, God, like, if you're there, like, just help us, you know, get us out of this kind of thing. And um, towards the end, he, the SWAT team, they wanted to bring us uh, food. Uh, I think it was donuts. And he told me to go get the donuts. And uh, I remember saying no. And I told my mom to go get it. So when she went to go get the food, I just remember hearing gunshots, and uh, shortly after, he he takes me, and I'm holding my sister. He covers my head, so I don't I don't see anything in the house. He actually works me out. Uh, I remember they took my sister into an ambulance, check on her. Uh, they took, looking back now, I would say probably like where they had a command post or something. They took us to me somewhere else, and. I just remember asking, like, I'm like, where's my mom? Where's my mom? And some lady told me that uh, she had died. So. God. So when you were in that whole hostage situation, do you have any memories or recollections of the adults trying to keep you calm? Because, I mean, that must be terrifying for a child and it must be terrifying for a parent because I would be so damn scared if it was on my own. But to have my child in that situation... I can't imagine how horrendous that must have been for the adults. Not, not really. I mean, I, I remember, like, I just remember, you know, always being like close to my mom, like she was near somewhere. I don't remember too many like conversations. I just uh, remember, you know, seeing, I remember seeing my cousin get shot. And then um, another one of my cousins, when she had came out of her, her room, uh, I remember the suspect talking and looking back he was in a he was in a mental state that with the training I have now I know he it wasn't going to end with him being alive he was going to kill himself or something um 
I remember him, you know, like kind of paranoid as to like how many people were in the house, but I don't remember much of like, uh, you know, like my mom talking to me or anything. I just remember really going in and out of sleep. I remember peeing myself. Did that. Oh, <laughs> I did, sure. did that once, just sleeping in the closet, just constantly waking up, falling asleep, like, you know, hearing noise and not hearing noise and like just losing, uh, like losing a track of time, like not knowing what time it is, what day it is, if it's day or night, you know? So you had that kind of experience as an eight-year-old boy. Obviously, there's another entire lens to that situation through the the law enforcement lens of that incident. So kind of walk me through, you know, what you've heard of of the police um, response to that event and then how that unfolded in tragedy from their end. So, uh, unfortunately, uh, a SWAT sniper ended up shooting my mother thinking she was a suspect. And initially, that area where the my aunt lives is a county jurisdiction so it was orange county swat team that was there at first and i don't know the numbers of like how many they had on the team at the time back then but it was small smaller than it is now and uh so they asked for relief from opd and uh i think the basic changing of information between the two teams was um we have a a house full of uh you know african-americans with a white male suspect but the only issue is I'm the only dark one in the house. Everybody is light skinned. So I think uh when she when she went to the door by the garage, um, they didn't see her face. I think they just saw like an arm light colored, you know, like light colored hand or something, and they ended up shooting through the door and ended up uh striking my mom. Now one of my OPD friends had said from what he was told that the shooter had also put his clothes on your mom, is that right? I'm not sure on that. Okay. Yeah. That might be a new new perspective then. I know there's, well, I haven't done it yet, but there's, I would like to like, you know, look at the case report on it and the, the debrief on that. Yeah. Because I asked him, you know, as you know, some agencies don't play well together. And I, I, I worked in Orange County. Meadowoods was actually my second due. So one, one um, station area south of where I worked. Um, and we would also do a lot of the stuff where we'd follow the Bearcat on the SWAT calls. So mm. I'm familiar with the county, I'm familiar with the SWAT team. And so I said, oh, you know, was there a good communication between the agency? And he said, well, looking back, the fact that they called OPD when it's actually closer to another county's jurisdiction tells me that actually, yes, they did. It was just, uh, you know, not just, but where the failure was, was the communication. And that one, yeah. like you said, that, that, um, lack of detailed description caused that one you know horrendous decision yeah so walk me through as an eight-year-old boy i mean the event itself is horrific and and uh you know that's an acute trauma but now you don't have your mother so you know what was what were the next years like for you you know and your family dynamic so the the next year i ended up still living with my aunt uh i go to school in uh, orange county third grade you know i kind of i remember there was times where like i'm just crying in class having like a tantrum or whatever and uh i I stayed there for over a year and after that i come to brevard county end up living with my dad and uh my brother and stepmom and for for most of like my younger childhood i kind of felt like it was my fault that everything had happened because i I remember like leaving the garage door open, so I had a hard time thinking like if I just left the garage door closed, 
you know, none of this would have happened. And um, my stepmom kind of like helped me get through all of that. Um, you know, they they put me in, they tried to put me in therapy and stuff like that, but I didn't, I don't remember that ever working. Um, then growing up with my stepmom and then starting to kind of learn about God and having, you know, a relationship with God, it was kind of like, understanding everything happens for a reason you know there's a higher there's a higher power like there's a reason why this happened you know so that uh that kind of helps me get through it at a young age now had that happened say a year year and a half ago obviously you know it would have immense media exposure what was the what was that element what was that response to the story uh so I know um, you'd have to ask my cousins about like the how the media took it because I mean you could still you could you can find it like there were news articles about it but it didn't I think I think uh, information travels a whole lot faster now and people are more quick to choose to be upset about certain things like if it were to happen now I, I mean it would have it would have been one of those things you see on like CNN every day and like you know you got a, a white cop shoots black woman unarmed you know so. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You have Al Sharpton at your house for the next two yeah. weeks. I mean, Johnny Cochran was actually on the case. I don't know if you remember him. Oh, really? Yeah. So I didn't, I didn't know that until I got older. I'm like, I don't know who Johnny Cochran is. <laughs> you know? Now, was he was he part of the OJ case? Yeah, yeah. yeah okay. He was the whole uh, if the glove fits, don't, if quit. the glove don't, yeah, that yeah. whole thing. <laughs> yeah. PR in law. Um, <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, then I kind of want to get obviously to your journey to to you know the career that you chose and i think that's what makes it such a powerful story i mean amongst so many other areas but i want to kind of lay out the the rest of your kind of childhood so what about sports you know what were you playing because you know you ended up in a very physically demanding profession were you doing any sporting events or or training in a certain way that ultimately unbeknownst to you would would set you up for that uh I mean, I played like JV football for a little bit, but you know, back then I don't, that didn't help. The main thing, uh, working construction, I guess it's kind of a workout like functional fitness. And, um, so after, after high school, I probably give you the timeline here. So, you know, after high school, I turn 18, I graduate. Um, I start finding out, you know, my dad's having an affair, uh, my he was with my stepmom for like I said before I was born my parents separated so you know over a majority of my lifetime and when I came here she just felt like another mom to me and so I was, I was a mama's boy growing up so it was kind of easy to continue to be a mama's boy um find out he's having an affair with some lady uh in a different country and I'm just hearing my parents you know fight every night He's leaving angry. She's sitting there crying, find out what's happening, and I just start losing respect for him. Uh, anytime they would go out of town, I'd have friends over smoking weed, partying, you know, doing whatever. Um, one day they come back early, and they see the house is trash. So, you know, I I didn't want to come home, and my dad's like, if you don't, he's like, if you don't, if you don't call me back today, don't bother coming home. So I was like, okay, like I already lost respect for him. Didn't want to live with him. Didn't know how to say. I don't want to live here anymore. You know, it's kind of the way uh, the way he raised me. My brother, he's kind of it's like one of those mega authoritarian kind of deal where the parent always says this, you do it, 
you don't you do know. what I say, not, yeah. not as I do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, like, your feelings, don't care about it. This is the task, do complete, you know, which come learning that doesn't work with my six year old. <laughs> like, oh God, I'm learning these kids have emotions you got to deal with at a young age. So, yes, there's no manual. Yeah. So, <laughs> so after that happens, you know, I'm, I'm homeless living in my car. I'm in the Orlando area. I figure. I could crash at, you know, some of my friends' houses that are in college while well, I'm not at the moment. And um, that lasts for maybe a couple months, not not too much. You know, I'd, I'd try panhandling. I wasn't wasn't too good at it. I'm like an 18-year-old kid. I remember telling people, I'm like, hey, I know it doesn't look like it, but I'm homeless. <laughs> do, you have, do you have any money? And I'm, like, stretching, trying to stretch McDonald's value menus for, like, a week. Like, I remember uh, when I was staying with my, my friend, um, I bought maybe, like, 10 McDoubles, and I thought I could, like, have one a day. After, like, the, after, like, the sixth day, it was like, okay, this is not, I don't think this is good for me. So. But they probably looks exactly the same as when you bought yeah, them. Huh? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I probably didn't need to put them in the fridge. You just leave them there. Yeah, leave them on, on the top yeah. of the dash. <laughs> so, so then after, uh, after couch surfing, um, my girlfriend, my wife now. Her uh, in the meantime of this, she's she's living over here, driving over there, like giving me money anytime she can. She's sixteen, seventeen, working at an ice cream place, and uh, she's just. I mean, looking back, man, we were dumb, <laughs> like, but grateful. Like she she was a uh, solid. So her she asked her parents if I could stay with them, and uh, they're like, okay, you can stay here for a week, then you need to figure something out. And during that week. My dad uh, comes by. He has all of my shit packed, and um, actually, no, this is not. This isn't the time he had all my shit packed. This is uh, the time before we get there. He he gets there. He's like, "Hey, come on home. Like, stop, you know, doing your bullshit." And I'm like, "I don't, I don't want to live with you anymore." You know, and uh, we have an argument. He's saying, "I wish you were dead instead of your mom." And then he tells me that he's not even my real dad, and I'm like, "Okay, whatever." He he leaves. So he said that. I'm like, all right, let me fact check this. I call one of my many aunts, and um, I'm like, hey, my dad said he's not my real dad. Is that true? And um, she goes, yeah, I was waiting for somebody to tell you. I'm like, oh, okay. So you know, then I I double down and I check with all my other aunts that you know live down here, try to verify, and and sure enough, uh, he's not my real dad. He just uh, Ended up uh, signing the birth certificate to help my mom out at the time because she was she was single, and actually this past I want to say what maybe two years ago now, um, I finally got in contact with my real dad. So one of my aunts had his uh, his info. I guess just waiting for me to <laughs> ask for it at some point, and um, I ended up uh, getting his info and I talked to him on the phone, and the the background on that. He uh, he was an insurance agent in New York. Um, he sold one of my aunt's insurance, and he met my mom. I sold her insurance one night stand, and uh, he was actually married at the time. So I could see why I ended up being a another family secret. Mm-hmm. So on top of you know having a dad that I thought was my my dad, basically kind of being a pos, and my real dad is. It's not not so much better, so it's kind of like wow, double whammy. So now, 
Was there any kind of acute impact from that? Because you have already, you know, a huge amount of trauma. Um, like you said, you tried counseling, didn't feel like it worked. And of course, you're so young, you know, it's hard to process that. But now some of the stability that you'd known that you'd led into was not only taken away, but it was actually kind of thrown in your face, especially, I mean, God, to say, you know, I wish you died instead of your mom. That's, I can't think of anything worse you could say to a child that lost a parent. So did you, did you kind of, when you look back now, experience a kind of impact from, from that secondary trauma then? Yeah. I mean, there was a, it's, I mean, you know, the, the saying is like, like the the most influential parent, the same sex parent, you know, kind of thing. So definitely having, you know, no real like good genuine father figure. It uh it affected me young, but luckily with me and my wife, we were together. I mean, pretty much like my whole adult life. Uh, her dad, I mean, he kind of he taught me every like everything I know, every. Thing, like a man should know it was him changing all you know changing tire doing all that stuff so it was kind of like there's that gap of not having something to look up to so it ends up making you make you know bad decisions like all the bullshit decisions and stupid friends I was hanging out with looking back and analyzing it's like a, well you didn't really have you know a good background of like a, what a good father should have been raising his kids mm-hmm. but oh, what mean, good friends should look like yeah and like um people that that know me they know like because my dad he was uh he retired cop and then um got into like real estate when the, the market was good down here so upper middle class so you know they kind of just they were living in a subdivision so it just looked like i was a rich kid at the time but it was it was one of those things where you could get whatever you want, but it still felt like there was something lacking. Like when I look back and and think about my relationship with him and his relationship with my older brother, who's five years older at the time, um, it was like I could see there's weird things that he would, you know, do with my brother, but there's things that I wouldn't I wouldn't really have much of a relationship. So my relationship was stronger with my stepmom. And then kind of seeing all that go down was like, it made me lose more respect for my dad, if anything. Now, with him being in the law enforcement profession and retiring and, you know, we're all very, very aware of, you know, the the cost of the job. When you look back, were there any elements of what we might call PTSD, PTSD or or maybe, you know, other areas of his life that manifested when when he was parenting you? I mean, it could have been... I know he did, I think he did like 10 years, NYPD. And uh, I think, I don't know, he never talked about any like traumatic things. I mean, he was he was a, an agent, did undercover stuff. But um, I think when it comes down to it, it's just the, the breaking down of like learning how to communicate with different people. You know, like the, the way we talk to people at work. That's not the way you can like talk to your family at home. No, like, like, <laughs> definitely not. Like, there's times where like I'll I'll say something and um, I've I've learned to like emotionally detach from things to analyze it, and I'll say something like like that to her, and she's like, "You're not at work, bud. Like don't <laughs> don't like don't don't you're talking to me like you're a cop. Don't do that." So, well, so speaking of that, then. When you were, let's say, high school age, you know, you, you talked about going into construction, but what was your dream profession then? We, did you have anything that you were hoping uh, to become? 
so high school, I I really got into uh, like graphic design. I was like computer nerd. Um, I did like computer classes like three years, and uh, my dad it was, it was a straight dream killer man. Like I remember saying, "Hey, I want to want to do this," and it was like, "Well, that doesn't make any money. That's stupid. Don't do that." You know. And like looking back, having a kid now, it's like the money money's not the, the end game because you, you're gonna keep chasing it, and then that's all you're gonna have, and then what? You know. So that really, I was like, "Well, I got no." <laughs> I don't know what I'm gonna do. Mm-hmm. I just know they told me I gotta go to college or I'm gonna get kicked out. So I went to the community college down the street and I don't even remember what I was uh, studying and I was just taking classes, but my friends will tell you now, I was barely I was barely there. Like one thing I would tell kids now, just finish school, get it all done. Cause I've, I'm back in, well, I was back in college and I switched agencies. Now I'm readmitting again. I'm like, just do it when you graduate. Get it done and over with. Because it's a whole lot harder to to study when you have a career and a family and bills. It's Absolutely. easier to just do it when you got someone else paying for your shit. Well, especially when you're trying to redo math and English and you've forgotten yeah. 95% because you're you know yeah. 20 years out of school. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you that from experience. And also you end up being the kind of weird old guy in the back of the hall, which is uh, <laughs> makes yeah. you self-conscious. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, then, again, had this come out, a year ago, you know, there would be all these pigeonholes of this scene of, oh, this person was this color and this person was of this background. Um, and the, I think, you know, one side would definitely paint a very kind of anti-law enforcement rhetoric to your story. And then it's a tragic story. You found yourself entering the very profession that, you know, on paper had had taken your mother from you, even though obviously it's a lot more complicated than that and that person was trying to protect you. Um, so walk me through when you graduated, you know, which professions you found yourself in and then let's go to what made you choose policing. So after, uh, after graduating high school and then the whole, uh, you know, getting kicked out, being homeless thing, I, uh, lived, with, I lived with my uh, my wife's family or girlfriend at the time. Stay there for a year, and then we got on our feet, got a duplex, and my very first job was just working at Kohl's, and I was just you know moving freight in the back. I'm like, okay, like this is, I need to <laughs> need to do something else. So I started working uh, with her dad in a uh, construction, and um, it helped it helped me start to learn like core core values. You know, like people. Even if your job is a shitty job and it sucks, people still need you to finish your job so they can do their job and the whole thing gets done. So it made me appreciate, you know, hard work and putting in good work, you know, like people won't, they won't know who you are. They just see your work. Like you can, no one's ever really going to remember your name too much. They just know what you do. Um, so that, that really like helped mold me into where I am now. And it it got it was fun, but you know, shoveling concrete in the Florida heat, it got annoying. Like after a couple of years, I was like, okay, I need to do something that is um, I can have a career in that can have benefits, health insurance, you know. So I was thinking, like, all right, I want to do something that helps people, and uh, I want to do something that you know makes me feel good about myself, kind of deal. So I'm like doing the right thing, helping people. You know, firefighter could be that. 
then I realized, you know, getting on a ladder is not, that's not my thing. <laughs> like We were talking about that before we recorded, yeah. so not big a fan of heights. No, like even like putting up Christmas lights, man, it, I can, I think this is the first year living here after, you know, almost 10 years, I, I got on the roof to put up the, the lights on the second gable up there. Because um, normally my father-in-law would come do it, and I'm like, dude, you're doing it until you die. <laughs> so, but uh, so after realizing I wasn't gonna be a firefighter, I'm like, okay, next best thing, you know, being a cop. And um, my incident that happened with my family, it gave me like that big perspective of this is something that can happen, you know? Like, can you are you mentally prepared for this? Like, how would you handle that? And um, there's that old that saying. You know, they say, if if not me, then who? If not now, then when? You know? So it's definitely one of those ones where I was like, all right, like I'd rather it be me to go in instead of just, you know, watching all this stuff on the news about, you know, the incidents with cops, you know, if they shoot the wrong person or if something happens. I don't want to be one of those that's just sitting on the phone, you know, Monday morning quarterbacking that. I'm like, all right, I want to go in and do it, you know? Beautiful. Now, up to that point, had you experienced anti-law enforcement, um, you know, messaging from from family members or whoever it was that would sway you other way? Because I mean, you'd think it would be natural, you know. I mean, the same way as people, you know, even even let's take it from a racial point of view. Oh, I don't like you know group of people X. Oh, because I was mugged by someone once. It's like, oh, that's not the whole freaking race that mugged you, yeah. you know. But you see the same with law enforcement where. You know, the uniform is a uniform, and as you and I know, you know, there are phenomenal human beings wearing uniforms, and occasionally, you know, pieces of shit. Yeah. You know, there was, um, I mean, it's like what my dad and my stepmom at the time, they uh, they were a little, little ignorant. There was a lot of times, you know, where, like, yes, racism exists, but to constantly, you know, hear your parents say, I didn't get this or this didn't happen because we were black and it was like, okay, I don't, there's no way like every bad thing that happens to you is because of race. So, and, um, then living down here, you know, my, my dad being from, uh, New York and they think everybody from the South is, uh, is racist. So it was always, oh, there's, there's racist cops everywhere, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, you can, you keep saying it, but you don't, you don't actually know, you know? So, um, when I told at the time when I knew I wanted to get into law enforcement, I wasn't, um, uh, I didn't have a open relationship talking to my dad and stepmom after finding out the whole, you know, he's not my real dad thing. So I told my family on my mom's side about it and I told them why. And, um, they respected the decision, you know, like our, our family, um, luckily, I think being Jamaican, being immigrants, it's like uh, we're not too caught up in all the the bullshit that's happening in in America right now, and uh, so I think it made it easier. It wasn't like it wasn't a hard conversation. They they respected it. They knew. I told them why I wanted to do it, and they believed in me. So I think that helped give me the confidence I need to you know get a foot in the door. Well, it's an interesting point you touched on as well because I feel that's the lens that I have coming from England to here doesn't mean that my opinion is, you know, worth any more than anyone else's, but your perspective is different. When you're not born and bred with a certain narrative, you kind of walk into the room and that narrative's there and some elements of it might be valid, 
but some elements aren't. And it's it's very weird then when you start hearing and in mean, perfect example, take race out of it, the the COVID thing, you know, like we went from no one talking about immunization or, you know, really conspiracies or any of the other extremist conversations that we heard to all of a sudden pick a side, you know, and, you know, either you're, if you're not wearing a mask, you're a mass murderer or if you are wearing a mask, then clearly you're a conspiracy theorist, you know, sheeple, whatever, you know, and it's like, what, what happened? But when you walk into that room from the outside, you're like, hey, do you realize you've both lost your fucking minds? Like the middle ground, for example, in that thing is we need to make everyone healthier. So whatever we're exposed to, you know, you've got a better chance of, of, you know, surviving if there's tools like, you know, the real actually fitted masks or vaccinations, then absolutely use them. But also not everyone needs to have them. Um, but yeah, and when I saw that, like people became in such like airtight silos that they weren't willing to accept anything from the outside. And it was, it was terrifying. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the, I mean, I think growing up with what I went through and then the job I, I have, it gives you, uh, you meet a lot of people, a lot of different people from different backgrounds, and you got to have an open mind and, like, just take in new information and learn from it, you know? And um, definitely, like, me and my wife, we had we had COVID, and um, I'm not vaccinated, and uh, that got to a point where I was like, damn, this, <laughs> this shit hurts. Like, I ended up getting pneumonia after it, and I was like, okay, like, I know I don't really want to get vaccinated, but let me let me do some research as to like how to how to be healthier you know because most of the time i was i was looking at stuff and it's like you don't you don't see a lot of uh sick like vegans or whatever i mean we had a, we have friends that were vegan and it's just like if you eat better you live better you know so i'm thinking let me try to eat better and not eat as much you know shit food and try to eat better food eat you know, fresh meat, you know, kind of went, started doing the whole, um, finding, you know, local markets, getting better, better beef, no hormones and steroids and all that stuff just to, just to kind of feel better. Cause I don't, I'd rather do that, try that first. And if that doesn't work, then okay, then I'll research and then maybe, you know, get some random needle stuck in me. But at, at the moment I'm going to try this and see how that goes. And so far, you know, so far it's going good. You know? Absolutely. And I think that's it. Every person, exactly what you said, they get all the right information and then they make an informed decision for yeah. they themselves. Like, you know, someone living in rural Montana, Montana on a ranch has a different environmental exposure than someone living 27 floors up in yeah. New York City, you know, but it was like tarring everyone with the same brush. And, and for those two, both of them, the, the middle message is health and the, you know, the ranch hand in Montana is probably eating well, probably getting a lot of exercise, daylight, fresh air, yeah. you know, time on their own to basically be present. And then conversely, the person in Manhattan is probably overstressed, maybe eating shitty food, maybe stuck in a office for, you know, 10, 12 hours a day, you know? So those were the conversations that, that weren't being had. And it was the same with, you know, we'll obviously we'll get into this, but with, you know, some of the, the defund and, and, you know, all these discussions was absolutely there are times and you and I both know this. We've been on scenes where it wasn't handled the way it's supposed to hand, be handled, but we have to find the common denominators and, and improve the prevention element rather than just burn the whole thing down. Yeah. 
I mean, I mean, you can see it here, man. We we went plant crazy, <laughs> trying to get my my garden going. This like that thing there is a that's a whole passion fruit. Oh, really? Yeah, it had it had one last year, but it it broke and died on me. So definitely wanting to uh, you know hopefully in the future get some land and have my own farm. You know, kind of just eat fresh and try to live as long as I can, you know, enjoy life. Absolutely. Well, and we'll get into it now, but like our profession as well. I mean, you know, we're yeah. up against, especially you, you know, we at least have yeah. stations that we can move around in and I exercise. Like, I in. like to say I was a, I was a good amount of fat for uh, getting COVID. Cause like, you know, it, it took off a couple of pounds, but like it, it, I didn't end up dying, you know, like mm-hmm. I was still, I was still healthy enough. I was just fat. So I was like, all right, <laughs> I'll take that and I'll live, you know? Yeah. Well, that's the thing. It's, it, if people got it and it kicked their ass a bit, then that's a wake up call as well. Not, not in a bad way, you know, yeah. but that's what we should get out of these, these incidents is that, okay, this is you know, an opportunity for us to grow and learn and, and make ourselves better yeah. versus we just argue about these extreme issues, you know, vaccines, ivermectin, whatever you want, and no one actually learns anything. And then we go back to the same freaking thing we were doing two years ago. Mm-hmm. So talk to me then about your journey into law enforcement. You had, you know, your dad, you knew had been a cop, but you hadn't like got that actively in your life. Um, you know, was it, was it an easy path for you? Was it a rocky road? Uh, I mean, getting into it at, um, I think it was, I would say easy, you know, because like I said, it gave me that perspective that most people probably don't think about when they're thinking about wanting to be a cop. And uh, I'm like, okay, well, here's my real life issue that I had with it. So I know this can happen, you know? And, um, I remember when I, when I first got in, I, uh, when I was working construction, I had, I had dreads at the time. So I go into the police academy trying to, you know, apply and they're like, well, you got to cut those. I'm like, done, you know, let's, let's go. So, um, when I, when I was going through it at the time, I ended up, uh, I tried reaching out to my dad about it. And that relationship was still kind of strained because he, um, it, it felt like I was, I was owed an apology and it was pulling teeth trying to get him to admit he shouldn't have said, you know, I wish you were dead instead of your mom. And eventually that conversation happened, but it was still, uh, it was still strained. And, um, but once I got into law enforcement, the, the first place I got to is actually, let me backtrack. So the first place I applied to was um, when I met Doug Mondo when I worked at Coco. I applied there first. Um, they had a, a reserve spot. They didn't have um, a paid position yet. So when a, a sergeant was going to retire, I would have filled that position. So basically a reserve is you're working there, but you're not getting paid. And you know, my wife's pregnant at the time, so I'm kind of like, I'd, I'll take it because it took me eight months to finally get you know an offer. And, but I'd rather get paid for this. So halfway through the process with them, um, I get offered um, another spot in like a smaller town uh, south of here. And uh, they offered me the job on the spot at the interview. So I called Coco back. I'm like, hey, I'm going to go work over here. And they're like, where? I'm like, here. And they're like, okay, good luck. So I get there. And um, the the first stint, man, I was I was overthinking like – everything dude it was uh just any basic stuff like i'm just you know 
fumble fucking around with stuff, just forgetting certain things. I'm overanalyzing certain things, which makes my officer safety look rough. So long story short, I washed out of the field training there. And um, I remember the chief, I'm still friends with the chief. Now he's a great guy. He, um, I remember when he told me, it's like, hey, in the exit interview, like maybe you should look at, you know, working at a jail starting from there. And, um, you know, I came home here and I was reassessing. I'm like, I don't want to do that. You know, this is still what I want to do. So Coco was still hiring. Um, I reapplied. Lieutenant called me back. He's like, hey, what happened down there? And I was like, well, this is what happened. I told him, told him my issues and why they're happening. He was like, oh, that'll wash out in field training. Hired me. Uh, I go through Coco. Field training, you know, all those issues were gone. It was... I wouldn't say it was the place, it was just the person, it was me. I just had to like relax and remember be yourself. I was too thinking, I'm a cop, like this is the badge, you know, I gotta be, gotta be this. Like, no man, you're you're just a city worker, man, you know? And uh, you know, I breached through it there and, and uh, I think working there, you know, you kind of learn a lot about like the community. It's, uh, it has its rough areas and it's good areas and I think I grew there. You know, I liked it. I learned a lot about myself going there. So with that burning why in that you had as far as being the best police officer you could be to try and prevent a tragedy happening, and even though, again, I'm not putting blame on, on the sniper solely by any means, but trying to be a positive force, you know, against something like that happening again, you know, what did that look like on your ownership, on your training, on on your kind of journey, your your uh, um, the the seriousness of which you took your specific job? Um, it gave me it gave me those career goals of you know wanting to be on SWAT and wanting to be a sniper, still on the list of things to do. And uh, so, like any time there's a call that was like, okay, like we got to go in the fray, you know, there's a fight in progress, a shooting or something. It um it gives you that, like, all right, like, you know, your perspective, that's the fire. Like, that's the structure fire. You go in it, you know? So it was always like, this is it. Like, these are the moments that this is what you wanted to do, and, this, and here it is, so go do it, you know? So it definitely kind of gave me that, that work, that work why, like you were saying, like, here's your why you wanted to be here for this situation and this is what you got so go handle it mm-hmm. now what about the root causes of some of the things you started seeing when you were wearing the uniform because one thing i like to do on here is just reverse engineer anything and you know obviously we don't arrive on these scenes from a, a legal standpoint you know, if we're responding as you know fire and, and ems but I tell people a lot, the responder's perspective, the law enforcement's perspective is so important, yet there's very, very few voices out there. Like I tell people, I can name a bunch of Army Rangers and Navy SEALs that are very well known, that are written books, but cops and firefighters and medics, unless you're in our circle, I know books written by you know people, but I mean, as far as giving that lens to the general public, it's invaluable and it's almost unheard. So... Um, when you started getting out there, um, you know, what were you seeing as some of the root causes for some of the, whether it was violence, crime that you were seeing in the jurisdictions that you worked? I mean, the, the main thing was 
the gang violence you would see up there and uh like the innocent people that it would affect the the bystanders the victims and it was like and knowing now it i tell people if you're going to be the victim of a crime by a gang member that gang member is a teenager you know it's never someone old especially in this area it's always someone young and it's hard for a regular person to to look at a 16 17 year old and think oh man look, that guy's gonna kill me for my car or just kill me just to you know just to get some views on social media just to be somebody and um it makes you it made me kind of worry more about our youth in the future like the the old people you see i i don't think you can change an adult you know they are who they are i can try to give them a speech you know like hey this is what happened to me you can change but if you're 50 years old you know you've you've made that decision and this is just this is just the time in my life where i meet you and you meet me and you know we go our separate ways i can't affect you as much as i can affect a, a teenager that thinks growing up in the hood and seeing his older brother be a gang member thinking that this is his only way out because his brother makes a whole bunch of money selling dope so i that's one thing um, I liked about working there. I could kind of talk to kids more and try to get them out. I know there was, um, I don't remember their name, but um, a dispatcher had called me one time and she was like, hey, there was a, a family you met one time and um, he spoke to the mom and the son. The mom wanted to call back and say, you know, thanks for talking to my kid. He ended up joining the military. And I was like, oh, that's cool. You know, it made a difference there. So, and that, I think that was one of the big things for, for me was uh, just seeing, seeing basically kids committing, you know, violent felony crimes, killing people, you know, selling drugs, shooting. It, uh, it could take a toll on you. Absolutely. Well, one of the root causes I see over and over again, and I talk about this all the time, and I'm sure some people get sick of it, but I'm not going to stop talking about it till it's fixed. But for me through the medic slash firefighter's eyes the ripple effect of drug prohibition so you know the sending addicts to the underworld empowering the underworld to be able to sell to be able to smuggle all that stuff um you know what that's done for the addicts and in prostitution and, and all these areas that to me is a very strong root cause that i see even in you know the poorer areas that keeps them poor you know they're they're basically um profiting off the death of their their community so with your areas what was the impact of the drug side of what you were seeing i mean same thing there you would you would see like uh the progression of people when they go from maybe just like a drunk homeless bum to you know slowly going down the road of being a crackhead and then next thing you know you see them overdose for the last time and it's like it you you see it coming you just don't know when you know and uh in the beginning it's like it's shocking new information you know you're not used to seeing like people die like that but then you start to see it a lot and sadly it's something you get numb to you know like i mean how many times you go to a call and you see somebody shooting up and then you got a narcan and bring them back and then you bring them back they don't want to go to the hospital they just want to leave and it's like if you leave, you're going to die in like 10 minutes, but, and, uh, it's, uh, you see families get torn apart from it and there's like not much, 
not much we can do on our end. You know, we we just bring them back, but it's only a just another timetable until they do it again. And I remember um, seeing like the there was a uh, where they get their um, forgetting the forgetting the the name of the drug for it when they get their uh, the meds for opiate overdose yeah, um yeah. oh my goodness i know exactly what you're talking about it just fell out of my head too i'm not a drug cop anymore man <laughs> <laughs> well, the yeah. methadone yeah the methadone yeah, clinic okay. when they go to yeah. methadone clinic i remember the first time i saw the methadone clinic i'm like heading home night shift i see i see a line at 6 a.m you know like 50 people in line methadone clinic go get it and they're back out the next day doing the same thing and it's like it's definitely one of those things where, you know, still kind of young, but starting to learn how drugs were handled in the past in this country, like in the 90s, you know, the whole uh, the war on drugs and all that stuff. And then you, you see that uh, it's more of a money-making thing. No one really cares about people that are addicted as long as they can make money off of it. The money, money is like, it's the thing that keeps everything going. You know, like I've seen my wife, she likes to watch all them documentaries and I get I get roped in on it and I'm like, oh wow, I'm like, that explains that. Like they don't, no one really cares about helping people. As long as uh, money's moving, it's going somewhere and someone's getting rich, you know? Yeah. No, I mean, I do complete and this is what I talk about a lot and it, it all comes from you and I see it. Like I tell people that like, we get to pull the curtain back on the Wizard of Oz, you know what I mean? We see what's really going on and you know we talked about health so for example the you know fire ems and pd as well get to see that very very overweight people with a bag of meds that we were told would reduce their cholesterol their blood pressure their you know arrhythmias and they still die at 40 50 whatever it was you know and then there's the war on drugs and the dude with his frying pan and the egg and you know and no our streets are horrendous and yeah there are some say i'm sure if we you know you're a cop in windermere your view would be very different than than some of the places that you and i have worked but the underlying element is mental health you know and that's probably sadly what what caused that guy to even find his way into your family's life in the first place i'm sure if you reverse engineer his path i'm sure there's trauma and it's just you know this multi-generational cycle doesn't stop and the war on drugs, you know, started in the 1930s after the war on alcohol was a complete disaster and they, you know, the prohibition was lifted. And yet there's still, and especially in law enforcement, as some of the hardest people that ask about this, you know, is when you spent 10, 20, 30 years enforcing drug laws, you know, and you look at the old 90s cops show where they have this fucking epic yeah. car chase and then they whoop this guy's ass and then he has like a little bit of, you know, weed in his pocket. Yeah, and then he goes you to know. prison for 20 years. Yeah, exactly, yeah. you know. Um, you know, again, we get to question and go, look, this is not working. You know, should you arrest smugglers and dealers? Absolutely. That's a crime. That's profiting off addiction. But the addicts are probably most of what cause the crime that we see. And then the violence from fighting for territory to sell to the addicts are the things that we see as well. So, yeah, I mean, questioning the legalizing addiction, you know, de decriminalizing addiction, not selling. And, and there's also this misunderstanding that, oh, that means you're going to go to Publix and there'll be crack and meth and, you yeah. know, next to the baby formula. It's like, no, just when you, when you interact with someone, 
that money is funneled into proactive measures where you get mental health care and addiction counseling. And there's places like Portugal and Switzerland and you know, other places around the world that have done it with huge success. And I always say this with this defund conversation with this George Floyd thing, it was all about you guys. It was all about, oh, these, these cops. Well, where's the conversation on that the streets of Finland aren't filled with gangbangers murdering each other? What are we doing wrong with that thing? I think that's the conversation that my profession, your profession, and everyone else needs to come together. Because when I ask people, especially now in 2022, people are starting to go, you know what, I think that's a good idea. So if we have the same uh, energy and gusto behind changing the mental health crisis as they did behind bloody COVID, we would literally change the world. Or if they had put up that much money into it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Already, right, how many billions went in the... But in the COVID, with all the, you know, Pfizer and all that, um, I think, I mean, and you see the, the people, the people that, like, I'm not, I'm not really big on, you know, pharmaceuticals. I don't take any pills or anything. And it's the people that can't afford the pills. They ended up, you know, making their own drugs for the same effect. And like, that's where, that's where crack comes from. You know, it's just, okay, I can't get this. I need this doctor won't fill it so I'm just gonna make it and it's always it's always a spiraling thing of you get addicted to pills and then you get addicted to drugs and then so definitely uh it's one of those things where you wonder if um if people and the the, the government's not gonna they're not gonna help you like get better on your own it's more like you gotta research yourself and do your own information as to okay why do I feel like this? Is there something I can do to change this? And um, like even there's something you're talking about earlier, like sleep, like even just getting <laughs> getting more sleep helps, you know, like or just tracking your sleep. And like there's times where when I was working night shifts, I was running on four or five hours of sleep, and I'm like, this your body your body feels worse. And there's research, your immune system is is weakened with less amount of sleep you get. So like the immune system is what you got. And you kind of need that to be as good as it can get for you. So like now, like I mean, my wife she'll she'll get eight, eight or nine. And like if I get my body's still adjusting to getting more. If I get seven, it'll want to wake up at like six, <laughs> and like I'll wake up at like five o'clock before the alarm goes off. And I'm like, damn it, I have one more hour. <laughs> Are you so, on days now then? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It takes a while. It's honestly, I'm not exaggerating. I did 14 years. And it, I want to say it took pretty much three years to reset. Yeah, I I'm just it. kind of getting there now. So, I mean, even like now, like sometimes where it'll be 10 o'clock and I'll be like, ah, I'll just, I could sit on my phone for like another hour before I'm like, all right, I should go to sleep, mm -hmm. you know? Well, yeah, I, I, there's definitely some things I do now. Alcohol, I've actually talked about this for, you know, five years on this show about how I use alcohol as a, you know, a tool to unwind. And I'm, I'm very conscious of how unhealthy it was and then i just had a three month abstinence i had a couple of days because i had my birthday where i drank and then i'm you know again haven't since then um that's been huge i'm not drinking alcohol for me blue blocking glasses before we go to bed i put my damn phone in the other room so yeah. that i can't play with my phone for an hour before i go to bed um and it's amazing if you don't drink and you don't i mean i'll even because the blue blocking glasses allow me to watch a little tv because i do find you know that helps kind of wind down i think the blue blocking element stops you getting that stay awake stimulus and yeah i'm sleepy as hell by 10 o'clock now but it takes diligent like deliberate 
routines yeah. to, to tell yeah, your body, hey, it's okay to wind down. You know, I've been, you're not uh, going to get a call. I've been seeing like stuff about that, like the whole like keeping the phone away from the, the nightstand at night. And that's uh, like, I'm horrible at that. And I need to start trying that because like I'll just sit there and look at it. And, uh, and with, uh, with beer, because like I'll, I, uh, I run half marathons and like towards, um, like if I'm like a month out or a month or two out, I'll fast until then. And then um, this last one I ran, I took like a month off break of running and I like drinking craft beer and those, those things are heavy. They are. <laughs> so I started, <laughs> I started running again and I'm like, oh man, like I gotta, I'm about to have to like cut down on the beer again. And it's funny, the last time I ran a half marathon towards the end of uh, the last like quarter of a mile, a doctor is like, he pulls up next to me and like, we're like running and talking. And I'm um, just picking his brain because, you know, you got a guy that's like maybe like 60 years old and he's about to finish a half marathon the same time I'm about to. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, like what, am I, what am I doing wrong here, man? Let me, <laughs> let me ask you how you feel about certain things. And he's like, yeah, you got to stop drinking beer. And I was like, like, like all the time, <laughs> you know. So that's definitely one thing where I'm like, OK, I can tell when um, when the body goes like, all right. It feels good, but long-term gain is like, mm. like you know, you kind of got to space it out. And um, like going back when you're talking about like decompressing with it, um, there was a time when I was on nights and I was just worn out and, you know, dealing with shit at work and just being up. I come home and I find myself for like maybe a month straight, I'm like drinking a beer before I go to bed at like seven in the morning. And like, and that's two things like, it's not good to drink before you go to sleep and then now you're on that night schedule like you're drinking in the morning and it's like okay like reassess like we need to find something else you know because this can go down a path of uh you know bad bad body decisions and next thing you know you're an alcoholic absolutely now with that just uh, i haven't visited this element yet you had the the acute trauma losing your mom you had the you know the trauma really as a, a young man your interaction with your dad then then you join a profession where you are sleep deprived, where you start seeing and having to do things that in themselves are traumatic. Um, I don't know if you experienced this, but I had agencies where the biggest trauma was who you work for and some of the, the politics in that. Um, on this whole journey, did you revisit counseling? Were there any tools that you found have, have helped you address what you've been through when you were younger? Uh, so mainly with... Uh me and my wife, we, we did marriage counseling, and um, I found that helped. And it wasn't like, you know, like we're on the verge of divorce or anything. It was just like, okay, let's, you know, there's some issues. Let's see how we can fix these issues. And, of course, all of my issues <laughs> had to deal with uh, my childhood with um, my dad and, like, how that affects my communication with people, you know, people that I love. So... Uh, mainly, I think uh, looking back, there was never um, there was never anything like after what happened with my mom. There wasn't something that uh, was was holding me up from or giving me trauma with communication or anything like that. Except my wife will tell you, I got a hard time telling people I love them. Like her, her mom would say it the same by on the phone, and I'm like, I still can't say it. I'm like, all right. Like I can only, I can only tell my wife and my kid, but uh, 
looking back, there was sometimes um, the counseling helped me learn my issues were just kind of just being being my own man, and you know, she re- the counselor recommended you know making that olive branch to my dad, and I tried I did that. There's three separate times, you know, like being an adult. I'm in law enforcement. I have a career. I have a kid. Married. Like, I think I'm doing this right, you know. And um, there was one time when we're at my parents' house, and uh, my wife took my daughter to the bathroom, and my dad was like, "He was like, what, what's your daughter's name again?" I'm like, "Okay, so you, you you just don't care. Like, I can't. I don't want to. I can't waste my time on this anymore. So like, I." I've invested enough. I've tried, you know, like I'm, I'm fine with this. This is how it is. And I realized like life, I mean, especially having a kid, I feel like time moves faster and there's times where it's like, I can't waste time on people that don't, that don't love me. Like I can't waste my free time on that. And like, even now, like my daughter's six, she's turning eight, you know, in two years. And I, I was thinking the other day, I'm like, like, can you imagine can I imagine dying in, in two years? You know, because that's when my mom died when I was eight. So, and it's like, you know, I feel like there's so much I haven't done yet in life. And and it, it definitely, it's it's hitting me the older she's getting, you know? Like, I just want to make sure I can live, live a full life now. And, um, like, my mom, I think she was in her 40s at the time. Like, she'd be, yeah, she, uh, she's turning 62 this year, I believe. Her birthday is this month. And uh, and I'm like, thinking in my head, I'm like, can you just imagine dying at 40 or even dying at 60? And, you know, there's so many people that you see on TV that you you grew up always watching. And it's like, man, that guy, he's 84. Like, he's seven, like I, you know, like, how mm-hmm. old is Morgan Freeman, you know? Oh, he's old. Yeah. Like he was awesome a- and old. <laughs> <laughs> like he was always old since I remember and it's just one of those things where it's like do what you can mentally physically to like get to that point you know like i got a little crossfit gym stuff in the garage you know that functional fitness you know i I believe in that that helps like the weight i'm at now you know if i could cut down probably like 20 20 pounds i'd feel better like i can i can move at this weight but i'm like all right let me let me cut down you know, because I, I don't want to, I don't want any knee issues, joint issues when I get older. I just want to be able to do my time in law enforcement. You know, if I do something else, you know, I'll have my whole body that I can, I can relax and enjoy life and not to worry about my kid having to push me around or be stuck in a hospital, you know? Well, I think that's a big conversation that wasn't had as well. And sadly, this kind of fat shaming element has factored into this where rather than the message which I truly believe most people want other people to be healthy out of kindness and compassion and fat true fat shaming is just a horrible person and that could be racism prejudice you know whatever that's just a turd you know spitting out hate but the concern for the the health of the nation comes from a place of kindness firstly you know when when you are in good shape you're like dude this is what the human body can do and i'm you know like for me i'm i'm in average shape i'm, I'm a good version i guess of me but you watch gymnasts and martial artists and you know all these phenomenal people and you're like my god the human body can do 
incredible things. And like you said, you're 50 year olds, you know, wheeling around in electric wheelchairs for no other reason than their weight. Um, but that's the other side of the, the conversation is like, as a person, if you don't choose to take care of yourself, you're choosing to be a burden to your family. You're choosing to be a burden to your community and your country. Um, and the, you know, now, and then even sadly, you become a statistics and things like a, a pandemic where it should have only had a, you know, a much smaller death toll now wiped out loads of Americans. And it, you know, that's no matter what anyone wants to say, you know, 90 plus percent were chronically ill before it happened. There's always anomalies. I've had people that were young and fit drop dead from aneurysms and, you know, all kinds of stuff. Was there any rhyme and reason to it? No, it happens. But most people, you know, it was their health. And if, and you wanted to prevent what happened to you and your family from happening again, and that sent you to a law enforcement, I want to prevent the death and disease I've seen, seen as a paramedic in the people I run on and in my peers. And that's why I started this podcast. And so I agree with you completely. Like if you don't want to do it for yourself, do it for someone else, do it for your, the people that you love. Because otherwise, as you, I mean, you said it perfectly. I don't want my kids to be pushing me around in a wheelchair either, you know, and if it happens, I get hit by a bus, then it is what it is. But that was kind of out of my control. But the things that I can control, I don't want to be a burden to my family. Yeah. I just saw, that's why I just saw something on the internet the other day. And it was like, uh, the saying where people say, you know, I'd, I'd die for my kids. And I was like, would, will you live for them? You know, like, cause that's that's kind of where I'm at with that. Like it, uh, like having having her really kind of changed my perspective on certain things. Like even when she was a baby, you know, I was working in in Coco, and uh, I still like I wouldn't care about making it home. I would just care about you know wanting to chase bad guys and do all that and have fun. And then she started getting older, and then I find myself I'm telling drug dealers and gang members at work, I'm like, listen, like I'm going home. Whatever you do, I gotta. My wife is expecting me to go to Disney. Monday, like I got annual passes, I'm going home. If if I gotta kill you, I gotta kill you. I'm going home, you know. And uh, it it definitely like having the family was it turned into that that why like what is your why? And I wouldn't I wouldn't be here without that. So absolutely. Well, I want to go one more area, and then we'll go to some closing questions. But this last year, you know, you had the whole defund movement. You had some legitimate errors by people in uniform that again took innocent family members from families and i totally understand you know why those people were devastated but then there i was tagged on to you know so much anti-police rhetoric obviously the the actual concept of defunding you and i know it's like defunding the fire department we've already got fire yeah. stations closed yeah. down you just want no one to be there to respond um but with the solution of all this like coming from what you've been through um whether it's community policing, how how do we repair the damage that was the, I mean, really, the, the media shitstorm that followed some of those incidences the last couple of years? I mean, just time. <laughs> you know, you see in history uh, kind of repeat itself where, you know, Minneapolis is now throwing hundreds of millions back into its law enforcement. So you just, uh, I mean, the media really, they got what they wanted. They got division. Um, I think once you realize that we're all just trying to work together, that'll help kind of get get us. And I don't know if there was how it was in the past. It won't be better than in the future. We can always make improvements, you know. And that's kind of 
the point of learning new information. So hopefully in the future, you know, we can start mending those relationships. And I know like for me personally, uh, my wife's uh, mom's friend, like long time family friend, he's a teacher and every year I speak to his uh, career development class in high school and I talk to kids and it's like, hey, like just because this traumatic incident happened to you doesn't mean that you have to be negative or you have to, you know, hey, fuck cops. You don't have to do all that and choose to not be a contributing member to society. Like you can have something bad happen to you and you can find some way to make, make it help somebody else or help other people. And so I, I got to tell him like, make, make your mess your message, you know? And, uh, it's, it's definitely, I don't, I don't know how many kids, are out, you know, doing whatever, but I know there's times where I'm the teacher, he gets back to me and he'll call me. I'm actually, I'm doing it again in two weeks and he'll tell me, you know, there's some kids that it really impacted them. And sometimes there's, there was one kid last time he, uh, he didn't, he didn't believe me that I told him, you know, what happened with my mom. And I'm like, I'm like, you can Google it, man. If you don't believe me, if you want to sit here and, you know, act like a class clown, but I'm just trying to, like, I feel like, at least my purpose, you know, I wasn't just raw, put on this earth for something. And I feel like if I could help somebody get through whatever they're going through, you know, have them get out of that hole. Cause there was a time where, you know, I was, like I said, I, I blamed myself for a little bit. And, you know, when you're young, you shouldn't do that. You can't, I couldn't control that variable. I, I wouldn't have like, okay, if the garage door was closed, what if he just jumps through a window, you know? So, it's definitely uh, like between that and then it was I tell them like something I couldn't control was that something I could have controlled that I made a bad decision was when I was 18 now my bullshit both of those happened both of them could have easily been a reason enough to say you know fuck cops fuck whatever and just go about be a piece of shit um, but I chose not to you know and I think the main reason why I choose not to is because I had I wasn't. I wasn't living for me. I had other people dependent on me. Like I got. I got them dependent on me. You know. So I can't. You can't be selfish with your life. You only got one. Absolutely. Well, it reminds me as well of of the message itself. Um, you know, not being defined by your trauma. And I just had uh, Danny Boy O'Connor, who's one of the House of Pain members. Yeah, I saw that, and I was like, "How am I supposed to follow that up?" Like, <laughs> <laughs> no pressure here. Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> you literally are following him. He's going to be uh, in today's actually. Um, and uh, but no, but it's so interesting because he said, you know, their own lyrics and obviously a lot of hip hop and I'm a huge hip hop fan, even to this day, even though I tend to gravitate still towards the 90s stuff. Um, you know, it can become a self-fulfilling prophecy if it's all fuck the police. And you know, the irony I point out all the time is like Ice Cube and Ice-T, you know, fuck the police and cop killer. And now they're always on cops. Playing, exactly. Making cops. millions yeah. betraying cops. Where's the, hey, by the way, youth of today, this is what I was thinking then. This is what I've actually learned. These are always great. You know, there's none of that, which is which is terrible. But yeah, I mean, if the more we we paint this division, and as you and I know, those are the extremities again. Those are the extremes. Yeah. The, you know, the ones who truly are in uniform and are bad people and the ones that truly are out there gangbanging is both slivers of society and the rest of us people, in, you know, normal people are in the middle. But the more we allow that message to be portrayed, 
the deeper that division becomes. So I think, you know, hearing your story is why I think it's so important. Just is just one of, you know, millions and millions of stories where people have tragedy and it didn't define them. And in your case, I mean, you, you could fucking drop right into the narrative of the last two years and, and be standing next to Al and his fucked up haircut <laughs> yeah. talking about, you know, yeah. race and, you know, racism in, in 2022. And yeah, there's, there's racism in bigoted, probably mentally, you know, traumatized people that have allowed themselves to buy into that. But we need to hear you. We need yeah. to hear the Knicks of the world you know showing that most people are incredible people and that you don't have to be defined by a trauma and no matter your color creed whatever you can be whatever you fucking want to be in this world you forge your own path and hopefully the mentors of the world will unite and raise these young men and women up and empower them and show them look you know yeah you were born here and you and i have seen these houses where you're like how the hell are these kids ever going to get out but then you have people like I had Steve O. Michelle, who was born in Timberscan. Uh, if anyone in the Orlando area knows where Timberscan is, it's it's I mean almost apocalyptic. These poor people living in this te- this little uh, apartment complex, and he he ended up getting a scholarship going to the University of Colorado. I think I got that right. It was in Colorado, whichever the college was. Um, and then went back to Orange County and became a firefighter and worked in his first due protecting timber scan and inspiring all the young kids. Look, this yeah. is what I did. So I love these stories. Yeah, definitely, man. When um, I told people in America, I mean, you can be whatever you want to be here. If you want to be successful, you can be successful. If you want to be oppressed, you can be oppressed. You know, it's all it's your mindset. So if you want to sit there and blame, you know, other people, go ahead. But no one's going to, you know, no one's going to help you help yourself. And like what what, uh, what happened with my family, man, is definitely uh, when I first got into law enforcement, um, the older guys, they knew about it and they saw me. They're like, they're like, dude, like I know who you are. I'm like, what? Like all the older SWAT guys, they would, uh, a friend of mine, he actually gave me a, a book. It's like a sniper training book and it has like all these different um incidents involving SWAT snipers and there's a section of the of you know what happened in that book and I'm like wow and uh even even now like the the people I met along the way just doing this just being being here um I had a training one time and I met the instructor he uh he says hey I used to work in Orlando around this time and I was like on a break I was like hey uh, you remember this situation he was like I was on that call out and he was actually the sniper scout on on the call out he ended up uh, leaving the sniper's post and he heard the shot go off and then they realized they shot the wrong person and when I say everything happens for a reason like what I expect you know 20 something plus years later that this guy's teaching me in a in a cop class you know we, we, we grabbed lunch we talked we talked about God, and um, you know, we still I have his number. We keep in touch. He just retired the other day, so I had to call him. I was like, "Hey, congrats! You know, you made it." And um, it's it's definitely one of those things where, like, I, I it's anything can happen, you know, and everything happens for a reason. So if I can if I can help somebody just by you know saying my story. You know, hopefully help somebody go, hey, just because I'm going through this doesn't mean I have to, you know, go down this path. I can get out and I can help change somebody. 
Absolutely. Now, did you ever get to talk to the sniper himself with you being in law enforcement? I've, uh, I've asked, I've, I've met some people, you know, I asked about them. Um, I haven't talked to them. I know at this point, that's probably going to be something in, in my next chapter of life is uh, talking to them mm-hmm. and just let them know. Cause I mean, I can only, I can only imagine whatever he went through, you know, like mentally back then. Um, you know, I, I was angry. I'm at peace. You know, I, I forgive him. Everything happens for a reason. And I think he's retired last side I heard, but I don't know where he's at, but I feel like that conversation is probably going to happen. Well, let's hope he listens to this. Yeah. That'll be amazing. Yeah. Well, Nick, it's been an amazing conversation. I want to just throw some closing questions at you before we kind of wrap up. Um, the first one I love to ask, is there a book or are there books that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion or completely unrelated. Um, so right now, what I'm, what I'm listening to is an audio book. It's uh, Joe DeSena. And uh, it's his latest one. It's about like parenting. Like him and Jocko Willink, man, those, those, those two which I saw you had him on the podcast, I think, right? Yes, yeah, yeah a couple yeah. times. Yeah, uh, his uh, his book with the leadership. Extreme ownership. Yeah, mm-hmm. that one, then the the second one he did after that was uh, I listened to, and it kind of helped me, um, it helped me learn, like, learn how to deal with uh, certain supervisors at work, and like knowing, because like, like right now, I mean, I'm an agent right now, I know eventually I'll be a supervisor, and it was like kind of, life skills to help you handle <laughs> conflict and there was one time where i had a sergeant that uh it was it was rough and i was like all right i need to i need to figure this out like how to deal with this and um those two like their uh, their mindsets really kind of help helping me be a better person you know Brilliant. So, yeah, i had joe on the show as well oh really joe, the founder of spartan yeah yeah yeah, yeah that guy that guy's crazy yeah but like <laughs> Yeah, no, that's brilliant to hear. And it's, it's funny because I went to the Extreme Ownership or well, the Echelon Front muster um, late last year, I think it was. And they did role-playing of basically bad supervisors. And it was, it was, you know, of course, it's easier said than done when you're just, you know, acting it. But, you know, there were some really interesting twists of where you put it back on yourself where, um, you know, because, I mean, sadly, a lot of the bad leadership really revolves around ego, so it's not kissing ass, but it was putting it in a way where, you know, you leave that supervisor feeling somewhat empowered, but you've kind of also turned them to the point where yeah. you've, you know, overcome whatever obstacle it was, whether you're asking for something or, um, because yeah, I mean, the reality is I talk about this a lot. Not only is that a real, a real thing in, in our profession that, you know, creates a lot of undue stress in an already stressful career, um, but it's actually a result you know, results in a lot of mental health challenges too so it's it's yeah. a you know an issue that needs to be resolved on a lot of layers yeah, half of this job is uh, who you work for mm-hmm. absolutely all right well the next question what about a movie and or documentary you talked about your your wife you know exposing you to a lot of them <laughs> well she, she she's big on any any netflix uh serial killer documentary i know uh uh, movies and it, it takes us a while to like watch anything new like I had to she doesn't like Star Wars so it took me years to watch Star Wars by myself the last like three episodes but um, I'd say probably my favorite ones are the Christian Bale uh, Batman movies I like those
Brilliant. All right. Well, next question. Is there a person you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? Uh, I mean, the only name I'm thinking of is uh, my boy Doug. Yeah. Doug, Doug Monda. Yeah, so I don't know if has he been on the show yet. He has. We're yeah, actually yeah. going to do another one. But Doug Munda is um, the man behind uh, trauma behind the badge. Yeah. And uh, yeah, amazing, amazing human. He's been on once, but we're actually talking about doing another one. So yeah. Yeah. So thank you to Doug for connecting us. By the way, <laughs> shout out to him. Um, all right. Well, then the last question before we make sure people know where to find you, uh, if you want them to find you. <laughs> <laughs> um, what do you do to decompress? Um, what I did to decompress. I mean, I, uh, you see it over here. I got a garden that we're doing now. Um, it used to be hunting, kind of taking some time off from hunting. And that was just really, it turned into, uh, I like to run, you know, work out and garden and fish. I've been trying to get back into fishing. My daughter thinks I don't know how to catch a fish a while back. She, she was like, uh, she asked my father-in-law, she's like, Papa does uh does daddy know how to fish? I've never seen him catch a fish. So I was like, Okay, I need to <laughs> we need to start fishing again. And what kind of fishing do you like? We were talking about it before we start recording. Yeah, surf fishing. I like just chilling on the beach, you know, throw some bait out and relax and enjoy enjoy the sun. See, I thought I discovered some awesome like extreme way of fishing where you're standing on a surfboard with a rod in your hand. <laughs> but then I realized it's what we call beach casting in, yeah. in the UK. <laughs> I think people do that though when uh, you shark fish, they'll go out on like a paddle board, throw that line out and then come back in. But, but yeah, not me. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful. All right. Well, then if people do want to either learn more about you, reach out to you, where are the best places? I know obviously in law enforcement, you're not going to be all over everywhere yeah. but what's the best avenue uh i mean email or social media i mean my instagram's nick 97 colt so that's it's old and that's same as my email address nick 97 colt at hotmail okay beautiful well nick i just want to say thank you like it's been such an amazing conversation when doug first told me about you and your story um you know not the like oh this would be a great scoop like some cheesy journalist but just and this is a conversation that people need to hear and to, you know, to go from, from, you know, what happened to your family and obviously what really happened to your family was someone came into your life that should never have been there. And then that created the other circumstance, but to have walked through now and, and, you know, you've got this beautiful family and, and to have what happened with your father experience. And now here you are a loving dad, you know, of a beautiful little girl. Um, you know, it's been, such an incredible conversation so i just want to say thank you so much for telling your story today well thanks i appreciate you listening <laughs>